Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, I'm your host, Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, Happy New Year and we start off this new year with one of the biggest cases in Australia in the last 20 years or so. Three women will be abducted, two will be found murdered and the third will be assumed to have met the same fate. It all happened in a suburb of Perth, Western Australia called Claremont. So the references tonight are from WA Today, The Age, abc.net.au, Sydney Morning Herald, and we go into a lot of court records. Okay, so tonight we go back over 20 years to Claremont, Western Australia, which in the mid-90s had a population of about 7,500 people. It's a western suburb of Perth, Western Australia, on the north bank of the Swan River. It's 15 minutes or so drive from Perth CBD. Claremont back in the day, and still is, I guess, a suburb where you'll find those on the wealthier side. There are plenty of private schools in the area. There's plenty of those. And usually with this type of demographic, the suburb is seen as a safe and secure place to live and grow up in. The rich kids would hang out at a couple of favourite places. A couple of those are the Club Bayview on St Quentin Avenue and Church Lane, and the, another favourite was the Continental Hotel on Bayview Terrace and Gagari Street. That's just to name a couple of the venues. But on the night of Friday, January the 26th, 1996, the perceived safety and security of this upper-class suburb would be shattered. January 26th is Australia Day, a public holiday. And being a Friday, most of the young locals would be organising nights out in town with their friends. 18-year-old Sarah Spears, just like many others that night, had organised to meet with friends, talk, maybe have a few drinks. Sarah was brought up in the country. Her father was a shearing contractor based in Darkin. She attended Iona Presentation College at Mossman Park, and as her family were from the country, she was a boarder at the school. Now, that college is not far from Claremont, so she was quite familiar with the area. After graduating high school, she did secretarial studies and landed a receptionist job with an engineering firm called BSD Consultants in Subiaco. She was popular, full of life and laughter, according to her friends, and she'd been living with her sister Amanda in an apartment in South Perth. So on this Australia Day night in 1996, Amanda, the sister, drove to the Ocean Beach Hotel on Cotslow Beach picked up Sarah and her friends and dropped them off just after midnight at Club Bayview in Claremont. Sarah hugged Amanda, thanking her for doing the taxi duties, and she went off with her friends. After a couple of hours, Sarah and her friends departed the club to go home. Now, Sarah called a taxi at 2.06am on the 27th of January and said that her destination was Mossman Park. Hello, taxi service? Pick up from where? From Sterling Street in Cottleslide. What number? Or are you at the phone booth? I'm at the phone booth. What street is it? Challenge? It's on Sterling Street. 
It's on the corner of Sterling Street and Sterling Highway, round about the middle up. Sterling Street and Sterling Highway? That's right. Hmm, what suburb? In Coddles, uh, Claremont. So the corner of Sterling Highway and Sterling Road in Claremont. That's right. Where are you going to? Mossman Park. And the name? Spears. Spears. That's right. Okay, thanks for calling. Now, a taxi was dispatched to pick her up, but by the time the taxi arrived, she was no longer at that location. A short time later, a series of screams were heard in the Mossman Park area just south of Claremont. Now, two of those witnesses who heard the screams observed a light-coloured station wagon parked near the telephone box. Now, Sarah has never been seen since. And it didn't take long for her friends and family to notice her missing. She was always in contact with her family. She lived with her sister Amanda and she had arranged for friends to stay over on the Sunday. She was reported missing to the local police and within days the major crime squad was involved. Her mother would tell reporters that Sarah's a very caring person and she's just very attached to Amanda. Amanda's her best friend, not only her sister, and not to keep in contact with Amanda even more than us, I would say, it's just so unusual. Her father said she wasn't ignorant to the dangers of the city. It was unusual for her not to be in company at that time because we stressed to them always to keep company, never to be alone. And that was probably the most unusual thing, that she did part company with her friends. Now, family and friends did whatever they could, posting missing persons printouts around town, asking anyone if they saw her late that night. They were hopeful that she would return, but as days went on, it didn't look good. Her bank accounts hadn't been touched, there were no records of her leaving the country, and she made no contact with friends or family. Club Club Bayview, well, they put up a $10,000 reward for information about her disappearance, The state government ran a $130,000 television campaign to warn women against taking risks at night. For Don, Sarah's father, he would be contacted even by clairvoyance as time went on and he could be seen driving all over the countryside following their leads. That is just so sad. So Sarah going missing shocked the community and as happens, rumours of what happened did start to get around. Still, life didn't really change for those young people who went out to various nightclubs and bars in the area. But soon, things would change dramatically. On the Saturday, the 8th of June 1996, 23-year-old Jane Rimmer went out with her friends. Now, Jane was a childcare worker who was extremely close to her family. Although she'd moved out from home, she would go back every Saturday morning to wash her clothes and talk about what had been going on. And how many of us have done that, hey? Go back home to see mum on the weekend and get their washing done. And there was a regular Sunday lunch with the family, and she would even drop in to see her mum after work during the week. She grew up in Shenton Park and attended Hollywood High School. She did part-time work at a deli and was a keen surfer chick down at Cotslow Beach. Now, when she left school, she had a childcare job in Nedlands, And then she went to work for a family as a nanny. Now when that nanny job finished, the Nedlands Childcare Centre were happy to have her back. 
In a video of her friend's wedding, she's seen smiling, laughing and dancing to Abba's Dancing Queen. She was bubbly and liked by all. As I said on the Saturday the 8th of June 1996, Jane went out with her friends in the Claremont area. They went to the Continental Hotel in Bayview Terrace and Gigari Street. Now, if you are Googling this, the place has changed names over the years and it's currently the Claremont Hotel. Anyway, towards the end of the evening at around 11.53pm, Jane was waiting with her friends to get a taxi home. Now, whilst waiting, Jane left the group to go for a walk and was absent when one of her friends managed to flag down a taxi. Her friends directed the taxi to drive down Bayview Terrace and to stop near where Jane was standing. Her friends asked her whether she wanted to leave with them. However, she declined. The last sighting of Jane was soon soon after on security footage outside the Continental Hotel at 12.04am. Jane, as I said before, was extremely close to her family and it wasn't long for them to contact police and report her as a missing person. Now, this really spooked the community. The day after Jane went missing, the Western Australian Police set up a special task force called MACRO to investigate the two cases. They must have already known, even at this early stage, that someone very dangerous was roaming the streets. Now, rumours were going around that either maybe a rogue or even a fake taxi driver was the culprit or even someone posing as a police officer because both Sarah and Jane were careful enough not to get a lift with someone they didn't know. Now, to help calm everyone down a bit, taxi drivers en masse were happy to have their fingerprints and DNA taken to prove that it was safe to hire a taxi as their businesses had suffered a major downturn. Now, the taxi industry, they underwent a bit of a reform from all of this, with a stack of drivers with significant criminal history delicensed. There was a higher standards for the examinations, and old decommissioned taxis were required to be stripped of insignia and equipment. So then you couldn't have fake taxis. Sadly, on Saturday the 3rd of August 1996, just 55 days after she went missing, Jane's naked body was found 40 kilometres or about 25 miles south of Claremont in bushland near Walcott Road, Wellard. No real attempt had been made to bury her body. Rather, she'd been covered by branches broken off from nearby trees. Although not released at the time, her throat had been cut and she had defensive cut wounds on her arm. Witnesses would recall hearing screams in the area on the morning of Sunday, June the 9th, when Jane had been abducted. Now, one clue they did find was a Telstra-issued knife, which was found on a nearby road. Now, Telstra's one of the main telcos in Australia. These knives were given out to the linesmen, all the service guys, you know, they've got to cut wires and stuff. With the news that Jane's body had been found and Sarah was still missing, women didn't feel safe on the streets, especially if they found themselves walking alone. Police had quite a few leads to follow up, but still they had no clear suspects. All they had was both Jane and Sarah were young women, they'd socialised in the same area and had ended up apart from their friends at the end of the night. Now, police suspected a serial killer and they knew... If they didn't get him off the streets, 
he would probably strike again. Then, on Friday the 14th of March 1997, 27-year-old Kira Glennon went out for a few drinks with her colleagues after work. Kira was born in Zambia to Irish parents. In the mid-70s, the family moved to Perth and lived in the affluent riverside suburb of Mossman Park. Kira loved ballet dancing from a young age. Her father described her as resourceful, resilient and strong-willed. Kira graduated from the University of WA in 92 with degrees in law and Japanese. She got an internship at law firm Blake Dawson Waldron where she began work in early 1993. She then spent a year travelling the world before she came back to Perth to be a bridesmaid at a younger sister Denise's wedding in February of 1997. On Friday the 14th of March after drinks with her workmates, Kira left the Continental Hotel on foot alone shortly before midnight with the intention of returning home. She was seen walking down Bayview Terrace and then along Stirling Highway. Now some witnesses report seeing a woman fitting her description in close proximity to a white VS Holden Commodore station wagon at around 12.30am. When her parents reported her missing, you can imagine what they thought. And the police probably thought as well that Kira had become the latest victim of what would become known as the Claremont serial killer. Again, with no activity on her bank accounts and no records of her leaving the country, Task Force Macro would have been treating her disappearance as a homicide. On April the 3rd, just 19 days after going missing, Kira's body was found in bushland near Pippadini Road in Eglinton. Now, Pippadino Road was a similar distance from Claremont that Jane Rimmer had been found. The difference being that Jane was found south of Claremont and Pippadini was north of Claremont. Kira was killed by a cutting wound to the neck and she also incurred defensive wounds to a forearm similar to the wounds suffered by Jane. Kira's body had also not been buried and had been covered by broken off branches just as Jane's body had been left. Now there was no doubt that the same person was the culprit and looking at how the branches had been torn off, investigators concluded that the person was quite tall and strong. Now police had acquired a lot of forensic evidence from the two recovered women but this is 1997. DNA is being used but with small degraded samples, not much could really be taken from the results at that stage. They did, however, have multiple reports of a white van or station wagon seen in the vicinity of women when they were abducted, and some described it as having a Telstra logo on the side. Then at 3am on Sunday the 5th of April 1998, 41-year-old public servant Lance Williams was arrested at his Cotslow Beach apartment. Police searched his car, home and possessions. They even searched his nearby parents' house. Now Lance was the eldest of five children and had never married and he'd only recently left home. Now, Lance came to the police's attention because they observed him driving slowly around the Claremont Entertainment Zone. Media got hold of reports that he'd followed up to 30 women in the area. Now, when questioned by police, they they went hard on him. They really did for about 10 hours. 
They were constantly telling him that he was lying and to confess. Now, Lance one night, while he was cruising, had actually been stopped by a woman walking alone one night. He pulled over and she asked him about when the next bus would arrive. Now, he told her that there were no more buses and he did drive her a short distance down the road to where, near where she lived. Now, he couldn't believe women were still walking the streets alone at night after what had happened over the past year or so. Now, some people might think this is quite creepy of him. Maybe it, maybe it, it is, you know, but nevertheless, they caught him. They were surveilling him and he was actually picking up women. Now, after months of interviews, Lance actually suggested to try and get the police off his back that he take a polygraph. Now, that didn't work out so well for him because apparently he failed. Now, as we all know in the true crime community, polygraphs aren't everything. They're not admissible in court, so he was probably just nervous as shit. And one other other aspect that Lance wouldn't have been a suspect really or he shouldn't have been he didn't even own a car when Sarah first went missing then his identity was leaked to the media and as he left work one day he was pounced on by a media scrum now the first question they said was are you the serial killer now he politely denied he was he was just trying to walk to his car to get home And it was really a disgusting display from the media. Now that his face was splattered all over the news and even his parents were starting to get harassed by the media, well, the next day, after all this commotion, Lance took the day off work, as you can imagine you would after getting hit by this media scrum being ambushed by them in such a high-profile murder case. Now, guess what the headlines were the next day? Claremont suspect skips work. That's just disgusting by the media. But they were all out to get any lead whatsoever. And I think the police did leak his name. And then in the same newspaper, it was The Age on the 30th of May that I read this, an article on another person who was rumoured to be the Claremont serial killer. It was Peter Weigers, former mayor of Claremont, psychologist and president of the Council for Civil Liberties. Now, he made no friends when he helped derail the political career of former Western Australian Premier Carmen Lawrence. And the police didn't like his campaigns on law and civil rights either. Now, in the post, he got sent this questionnaire and had four questions on it. So a bit of a survey sent in the post. I don't know exactly the amount of people that it was sent to. Could have been up to 100, it could have been 10, I'm not too sure. Now these questions, they were, do you know who abducted or murdered either girl? Did you abduct or murder either girl? Should we believe your answers to the questions? And if you were asked to pay for counselling for the parents of the girls, how much would you pay? That's bizarre. This was a professional police force that sent this crazy questionnaire out to all these people. We don't really know how many people. I mean, first one, do you know who abducted or murdered either girl? That's a fair enough question. But did you abduct or murder either girl? What are you going to say? Yes or no? And should we believe your answers to the questions? And then uh, talking about paying counselling for the parents. Now, 
being a civil libertarian, he refused to answer it. But he felt that he was being set up. You know, maybe a bit of payback for knocking a few tall poppies down. Now, he thought it could have been, if you don't answer, you must be guilty because you're not going to answer these four basic questions. There's easy questions. You just say, no, I didn't murder him. Uh, should we believe your answers? Yes. If you were asked to pay for counselling for parents of the girls, how much would you pay? I don't know. The fact that he was selected as one of a few that was sent this crazy questionnaire, well, his name got leaked to the media as well that he'd got it. Now, he stated that it was dangerous to law-abiding citizens because this set a precedent for police action that denied basic legal rights. Now, what he was talking about is the right to silence. So if cops are going to start sending letters out, questionnaires out to suspects, it's almost infringing on their basic legal rights. Anyway, once it was out that he had been sent this questionnaire by the media, so the media starts saying, hey, we think the ex-mayor is a serial killer, he ended up finding a cat's head in his mailbox. Jesus. Police, they always have denied that he was ever a suspect. Yeah, right. Anyway, yeah, they just want to hassle him. Let's get back onto the story. So, by 1998, the media was still reporting on the missing and murdered girls and how there was still a serial killer on the streets. Now, one article a few pages back from the one about the mayor also told about how there'd been several attacks in the area around the same time. Now, one was on New Year's Day 1994. A man dragged a woman from her car after she'd left Club Bayview. He tried to rape her, but she fought him off. Three months earlier, a woman got into the back of a taxi and a guy was hiding there and grabbed her, but she was able to jump out and get free, but she broke her leg in doing so. Then another incident was in February 1995. A girl just 17 years old was abducted while walking home from Club Bayview. She was grabbed by a man, tied with electrical cord, driven to Karakata Cemetery not far from the club and brutally raped. She was left for dead but survived. Then two months after Sarah disappeared, a woman was indecently assaulted in a lane behind Club Bayview at around 2am. Her head had been bashed six times against a brick wall and she had her skirt ripped off. Then on the 15th of February 1988, a man broke into a house in Huntingdale in the middle of the night. He attacked a young woman in her bed while she was sleeping. Now, he attempted to stuff a knotted stocking into her mouth, but she broke free and her father woke up and ran to help. Now, when the attacker fled, he left behind a silk kimono and the knotted stockings. Now, DNA would be recovered from that kimono. So, there are attacks on women in the area going on before and after the three main cases being investigated. Police would have been looking at links between these cases And then they set up this Telstra Living Witness Project. Now, what this was, they asked women in the area that may have been picked up by men driving Telstra corporate cars or vans to come forward and tell police of their experience getting a lift. Now, this was because they thought it was pretty likely that the serial killer, if he was in a Telstra van or, or one of these station wagon type things, 
there's a pretty good chance he would have picked up women and actually taken them home or maybe leered at them or groped them or just didn't do anything, just gave them a lift. And so what they tried to do is try to find some living witnesses. Now, they could probably provide vital clues about this possible offender. Now, after a while, several women did come forward and they were able to create an identical photo of this so-called Telstra driver. Now, this wasn't guaranteed to go anywhere. It was just a calculated guess that the serial killer used one of these Telstra vehicles. And from the eyewitness reports, these vehicles may have been involved. But they were desperate for any leads, any small detail that might lead them to this monster preying on young women. Lots of thanks to Tara Saraban for being the woman on the phone for the podcast. She's from Bloody Murder Podcast. Her and Barra, Barney, Barra and Tani, Barney and Tara have a great podcast. So if you haven't heard it, you should look it up. Thanks, Tara. So, Islanders, we will leave part one here. Three young women abducted, two discovered dead, all under similar circumstances. There are other similar attacks in the area, before and after. We have suspects, we've got witnesses, and now we have identical photos. It must only be a matter of time before this monster is caught and brought to justice. But just how long will it take? We'll see in the next episode. Okay, so that's it for this week. Just a disclaimer, I haven't yet listened to any of the other podcasts on this case. I just honestly haven't had time. And there are a few really good ones out there. I, I thought it best to read the papers of the day while researching this, so maybe some of my content is a bit out of date or a bit wrong. But next week we will be getting to the nitty-gritty of the investigation. So, before I go, a big shout-out to all my patrons. Thank you for sticking it out for the past few months. The island cases have been a little bit bare. Special thanks to my new patrons, Katie Kellett, Julian Smith and Sally Johnson. Thank you so much. You're so generous. And thank you so much for my existing patron true crime crew. True Crime Island is a commercial free podcast and it is free for all. If you would like to help out, go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island. It really does help keep the lights on. If you want to buy me a beer, you can shout me out on paypal.me forward slash true crime island. Links to merch, social media, or my YouTube channel is on my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can also email me, which is the best way to contact me if you've got anything or case suggestions. So, I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island, and as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night, and boom fuckalunga. R.I.P. Jeff C.